Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. This podcast is for teachers and parents who want to gain knowledge, perspective, and inspiration in the areas of literacy education and special education. Episode topics tend to focus on dyslexia, ADHD, literacy education, and mindful teaching. This podcast was created to build awareness for our nonprofit, Mindful Literacy Columbus. Check out the show notes to learn more and to get involved. Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. This week I am sitting with my teacher, Sue Hunt. Welcome, Sue. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited that you took the time um, to talk about this topic that's been on my mind and on my heart and in my family's heart for a long time. And I think the work that you have put out in the world really helps me um, put a structure and a framework to a lot of relationship um, work that I do and that I coach my students to do and my daughters to do. And so the topic of technology and kids and technology and preteens and technology and teens has been um, really in the forefront of my students' minds and, like I said, in in my family. So thank you so much for sitting with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great topic. And, you know, I can speak from some of the work I do one-on-one, particularly with moms, and then also just from my personal experience with technology and growing up with it. Yeah, and I think what triggered me to ask you to talk with me about this topic is you took a giant leap um, from being really active on social media as as an adult to kind of cutting the cord and saying no more. And that really grabbed my attention because mm-hmm. as an, I've grown up with technology. I've grown up with technology as technology has grown as well. And um, I distinctly, I think I told you this, I specifically started using Instagram so that I could find you after you did a teacher or after you did a training in my yoga studio. And I was like, I need to find out what the heck just happened to my mind body. I need to, I need to get more tools. How can I find Sue? And someone was like, well, you can find her on Instagram. And I was like, what, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think you were one of the first people I ever um, direct messaged and then kind of we started our relationship from there. So um, I, it really Definitely. caught my attention when you were like, okay, I'm walking away from this. And I, I was so, I rejoiced because <laughs> I'm, I was ready yeah. to give it up too. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about just as someone who grew up with technology and who was a really proficient user, what was the um, impetus for you to walk away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the main impetus was a lot that was released in 2020 about us being the product. If our if it's if we're not paying for it, then our attention is being monetized as the product. And you know, I clearly heard that, but still stayed in the space for another 18 months. And my life changed a lot in those 18 months and you know, now I have bees and a greenhouse and all these other morning activities that I need to be doing besides meditating and writing my 30-minute post on social media. And social media changed a lot, in particularly Instagram and Facebook, to become these shopping malls. And I'm already someone who really watches their consumption habits, if that's from, you know, physical products to food to, you know, the furniture that I put in my home. And here I am basically pretending I'm there for business, but walking around a shopping mall every morning. You know, in our virtual lives, one thing I noticed in my clients that started to worry me slash scare me a little bit was sometimes I would have to ask, okay, so the context that you just described, are you talking about when you're scrolling on social or when you are in public in your city or your town? And I was noticing that those two things were starting to bleed together 
And there was a slight bit of embarrassment to say, oh, I'm actually talking about this emotional reaction I had to social media. Of course, no one said this to me in the line at the grocery store or the post office. And I was like, oh, okay, so let's talk from that space, right? Because you're having this biochemical reaction sitting on your couch that is starting to get confused with what it would be like to actually interact with a person or a community or a group of people. And that was definitely a red flag for me when that happened four, five, six times. I was like, whoa, you need to also look at your habits. If this is getting reflected back to you in deep, intimate spaces that you're working with people in, then you also need to look at your own meta dialogue and your own choices. And so that led me down the rabbit hole of time spent, return on time, and, you know, return what revenue was coming back from actually using social media. And then I started looking at the numbers over the last seven years in my business. And your numbers meaning seeing it didn't, there was not really a correlation to time spent to um, Yeah. Yeah. So just as you described, you know, a lot of people used to reach out to me via direct message. And I would say that there was a very small rate that I actually developed a relationship with someone. So I was answering a lot of questions via direct message, but it really wasn't translating back to the work I was putting out in the world or engagement with my teaching. It was really turning into a lot of free effort that was going out the door for me where I was answering people's questions and that's all they needed. So then they would just leave, leave the space. And then also everything's pay to play now, right? So you aren't getting boosted on the algorithm via your organic posting anymore. And so, you know, being a public figure, I really despise that word, but, you know, publishing a book and needing my work to be read, you know, that's why I wrote the book. I started really learning the ins and outs of, especially when I was going through um, typical publishing outlets, what was needed in terms of my numbers and my sales and my sales acquisition from Instagram. And that put a lot more pressure on me as a creative and a teacher to really start paying attention to if it was working for me or not. I do think that looking at the teenage brain and the developing mind is imperative with technology because they're growing up with it in a way that we didn't. I didn't really have access to social media until undergraduate school, which is still a really young moment in your life when you're really forming your identity away from the family unit. But I think... One thing that's really sort of radical to take it back in this direction, but so my sister just had her second child and she made a commitment with her first child that she wasn't going to be on her phone or scrolling, answering emails or on social media while breastfeeding or around Daisy. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the developing mind in the co-regulation of the family unit that learns habits about mental engagement and attention span and social cues and well-being that is really the circulation of energy through our central nervous system at a very young age. So I think it's a great place to start the conversation there about your parental habits and your engagement with your phone and the way that that might be dysregulating your family unit or dysregulating your child's response if you're looking at your phone and saying like, get ready, we have to leave soon. Just let me do a few more things. And there isn't really authentic engagement where you're co-regulating together, like you're co-regulating with the phone at that point, right? Not the actual situation of what's going on in the family unit. And so I think it really starts there is just my educated guess and my level of awareness of watching family units. Yes. Absolutely. I, you know, and I've, I kind of can drag myself into feeling really sad about the data, but I'm always going, okay, what are we going to do about it? And when I first was thinking, okay, how am I just going to parent my own family? I like kind of had three verbs and it was observe, change and find. So the the first one is exactly what Mm -hmm. you said and what you did as a, as a, I really, you know, you're a thought leader in my mind, so we can take you know, public, public figure, thought leader, but <laughs> you looking at your own habits. And I think 
that's exactly where we're going to start as a family because we know that our kids learn everything from us, you know, and like mm-hmm. taking that cold, hard look in the mirror of, oh boy, what have I been, what have I been, what are my habits that I would like to change um, before mm-hmm. I introduce this new level of uh, this new communication mediator to my 10 year old. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's really wise. And then also it gives a little bit more weight to the data, right? Like you're looking at the data of the rise in depression, ADHD, suicides, particularly in young females. And it's a perfect correlation of now how do I actually set a different example and live a life that is going to contribute less to those my children being one of those stats. Mm Mm-hmm. It's been really interesting too, and you know my ten year old because we do sessions with you, um, mm-hmm. and getting her take on things. And I, she and I actually got into a really, I think, unique situation. Um, she's basically the last, the last woman standing in her fifth grade class to not have a cell phone. And um, wow. you know, I've been talking with her for the past few months about. Um, how she feels about that, like kind of how how does that impact her relationships at school? And, you know, she'd say, well, I don't really care. I don't feel left out until we're actually in person and the girls are talking about something that was said on a text and they won't recap it for me. Then I feel left out. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, stab me in the heart. That hurts, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, she's sitting at the lunch table just feeling isolated, but they're in person talking in real life (laughs) and she feels Mm -hmm. left out about something that happened who knows when so um so our school has this like phone book and for somehow somebody must have thought that my number was her number and so I ended up getting on this fifth grade text string (laughs) and (laughs) I mean it was overwhelming I was getting like 10 missed texts in a minute and it went on and on and on. And I'm sure there was like a hundred texts over the course of this. And I finally, I mean, like I'm reading it and a lot of it is very mundane and silly. And I'm thinking, why would I ever pay for a device and pay a monthly charge for my kid to just basically, I mean, it wasn't poop emojis, but it could, it should, it could have been poop emojis (laughs) like being exchanged. (laughs) And um, I was like, okay, so Genevieve, this is what, this is what you, this is what they're doing on their text strings. I let her read through it. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's not that. I don't really care about that. And then somewhere along the mm-hmm. line, and again, this is just a text string. It wasn't social media, but two girls posted a selfie of themselves doing something. And I was like, ooh, there's like 20 numbers on this text string. And then somebody else was like, well, I'm at the pool. And I was like, oh, I can see how this is going to get feeling people feeling left out and um, FOMO and all of that Mm. and just having Mm -hmm. what seems innocuous texturing. Yeah. And that's not that much different than an adult's life scrolling through Instagram. Totally. That feeling of exclusion or not enough or why am I not doing those things with my weekend? Right. And I think that the one thing I've actually been reflecting on a lot in the last 30 days or so is I haven't taken a selfie (laughs) and I haven't had the urge to take one and that that's such a normal part of our lives now, especially younger children as they're growing up and, you know, treating their text thread just like they're treating Snapchat, right? There is no separation when you're younger in that way, right? There's all these different messaging and connection platforms, And it's actually done wonders for my mental health to not be taking selfies. And I remember a while back, this was maybe seven or eight years back, I was in a rock climbing gym in Cincinnati. There was a family there and the little five or six year old kept asking the mom for the phone. And then the second the young child got the phone, she flipped the camera and started doing like pucker lips at the camera. (laughs) And I remember watching this happen five or six years ago. And I was like, wow, that is a whole nother level of, you know, entering the sexualization of young women in particular, and then learning the embodiment of 
hypersexuality and then portraying that to the phone screen. And, you know, I really saw that in the last 30 days in my own embodiment where it's like, I don't, I haven't flipped the camera around once. It's much more about an outward gaze now when I pick up the phone, which is like, oh, that tree's gorgeous or that sunset's amazing. I really want to save that moment. But that's reduced 90% as well. And then also flipping the camera around. So I think that's just a response to the young girl sending selfies on the text thread that it really does change our self-reflection mechanisms. And, you know, that action itself was really birthed through social media and just a little bit of astrology. We're in sort of a Uranus phase where we're really obsessed with self and home. And, you know, that all happened during the birth of social media and really its popularity. Yeah, and it seems kind of... It seems somewhat innocent, but my mind just goes to kind of the different developmental phases of a child's life and their metamorphosis and seeing, I've been working with kids since I was a kid. I've been working with kids since I was 15. Um, and I, I like just really enjoy observing them. But in, a couple of years ago in our, in our town, um, I remember this very clearly. I remember looking out. I remember looking out my window with my young girls. Um, it was probably two years ago at our seventeen-year-old neighbor, who was, you know, it was like a warm March day. She's in her bikini on her deck, taking a video of herself gyrating. <laughs> I don't know why. And the girls are like asking all these questions like, why is she doing that? That's so weird. What in the world? And I'm like, oh, just like pulled the blind down. And I'm like, I just felt really bad for her. And then like mm. no, no sooner than a week later were these high school boys getting really chastised for um, putting together this like list of like best looking girls in their class or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's not good. It's really, really not good. But what have we condoned here? What are we saying by, you know, having these girls post pretty much naked pictures of themselves? Like we got to stop that guys, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. if we want the judging to stop, let's stop putting the hypersexualization of our young girls out there. Yes. We want them to be strong and confident. Yes, they should be able to like walk with confidence in a bathing suit, wear at a pool or a beach or whatever. And, you know, even being like, I'll be the first to admit when I'm in the gym and I start getting dripping with sweat, I'm the first person to rip my shirt off and be just in my sports bra. But I'm certainly not expecting that vision to be up for the entire world to see, it, nor wanting attention for it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think and I, I think this is... Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think this is the fine line between, you know, how do we bear witness to the social climate that we live in, which is uh, racist, sexist, heteropatriarchy. And that is, you know, that stuff was happening before social media. You know, I remember eighth grade as we're graduating eighth grade, all the high school boys saying, you know, who's the cutest in the class and we we haven't even gone into high school yet right and this is before cell phones and so this idea that it actually is just doubling down because now we have access to be engaged with that kind of content all day every day and as a female you know how do I love and respect and protect my body but also understand the social climate that I'm in and that's a really complex dialogue to have with an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old. Totally. Um, what blew, one thing that did blow me away in a positive note, and, um, you know, I, I tutor kids who have really brilliant perspectives on life and um, for their young ages, and I'll say, like, the first time I'm, I met this this kid who's he's now going to be a senior but I was like when was it when is your birthday I saw you must say you must have Pisces in there somewhere <laughs> like you're so wise beyond <laughs> your years sure enough he did but at any rate we in our work together and our academic work together and um kind of our mindfulness executive functioning work together 
um, life comes up, right? And so this was in the during the Texas shooting. He he just needed to mm. debrief about it. He's like, Jess, do you do you know the details? And I'm like, I just I couldn't. I can't. I'm just such in a place of grieving. I just knowing that it ha- I can't like go there, you know. And so he kind of sat with me and we talked about it together. And then we started talking about just the causes and conditions of growing up, right? And and the phone mm-hmm. phone came up and he was just talking about like how he has deleted all of his social media apps and like how he sees TikTok being a detriment to kids' mental health. And he's like, don't get your daughter a phone. And this is coming from a 17-year-old boy who's just like, I wish my parents never gave me a phone. And I was like, oh man, mm. that I took that mm-hmm. to heart. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I totally get that. I think that you know, TikTok in general has a much younger population there. So that's also important to consider. Um, And also it's just such a polarizing space on purpose, right? And that's how the software is written to really divide and conquer. And that's already built into the way that we socialize our young. And so now here they are in this pseudo autonomous way, also relearning that over and over and over again to pick a side or to trust a meme or right it's it can be almost a like fact right at that age and even as mm-hmm. adults sometimes we take it as fact mm-hmm. yeah and um and not really having like the time or space to process it in a in a meaningful way that promotes learning I think is hard I think like this even happened to me last month as a 41 year old woman like people my age just like using text strings to just, I don't know. It was so bizarre. Just like, and people just ghost, right? They're just like no response when you Mm -hmm. do want to have a meaningful dialogue. (laughs) So just, I think that would be really heartbreaking for um, a teenager. Mm -hmm. You know, for them to find their voice and their, and their authenticity. And then just to be like, nope, close. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, you know, obviously technology was great during the pandemic. And then I think that there needs to be this, like we're coming out of that phase now because authentic connection, no matter your age, really happens mostly through body language, facial expression. And then, you know, from a yogic perspective, your auric field and their auric field could just be body language or facial expression. And when we lose that piece of the depth of communication, then we're not really sure how it was written or the tone or the information behind that tone or that person's worldview behind that tone. And there's a lot of room to just totally misperceive and confuse every piece of interaction through technology or the written word, right? We're really starting to learn differently how to interpret the written word, right? Normally we were oral and talking all of the time in community. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, the auric field piece is really important. Like the energetic, the energetic, um, vibrations that are exchanged. I call it, you know, when clients first engage me, they'll say, well, do you do zoom? I'm like, I mean, I can, but I prefer to see kids in 3d because I like to be able to pick up on what they're feeling. And even the smallest twitch of a cheek muscle tells me how they're receiving information. And that's really important for me to see in real time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's so, important. Um, well, I think it's interesting. You run your sessions with no visual. It's all voice current. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that since we're on the topic? Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question and it's a complex answer. One of which is um, sometimes the like social interaction, especially for a client for me on the other side, they're nervous and they're about to be in a very vulnerable space and they'll overcompensate with social behavior or like smiling or trying to make eye contact. And when I'm in session, it's different than when my social personality is just bopping around the world. Um, I'm actually not 
not listening to their body language or watching their body language. I'm listening to one, what I hear through their meta dialogue. And that's usually not what they're saying. And then oftentimes the social interaction will feel um, very cumbersome because the, the person's usually overcompensating. And, you know, I'm mostly sitting there with my eyes closed or looking at the natal chart. So I, I personally don't really want to engage with technology or having my third chakra be engaged with the screen. I'd really prefer to be listening really quietly to what's in between their words and then also what's presenting in their chart, which is a different voice that I hear that's not coming through the conversation. So even though I, I do remote sessions still, I just keep the camera off. Um, because there's a whole nother level of also the student's perception of my body language. And I don't want to add that dynamic into the situation um, because that could be misperceived, especially since I'm just sitting there with my eyes closed and not really making visual contact with them. Um, so if I know the person, you know, and they're new to me and I know them physically, like I had two new clients last week that live in my town I popped a camera on, said, hey, how are you? I'm going to turn it off. Good to see you. Okay, let's get into it. <laughs> to just remove that um, barrier. But that's not normal, right? That's me listening to other parts of the conversation that aren't actually happening in language function. And um, it's been cool for me to do pre-recorded readings as well because now I don't even have their meta dialogue. And so it's really been able for great practice for me as a practitioner of astrology. I think that's really interesting to take um, because the bottom line is with all of this, I think the conversations just need to happen within your family unit and with your kids, right? And so mm -hmm. to have the conversation with your kid, well, how do you feel about it? I can't tell you the number of times my daughter will be like, I'm fine. And I'm like, no, you're not. You don't have to tell me you're fine. I can tell something's not fine. Let's just talk about yeah. it. Or when you're ready, I'm here, you know? Um, and then just debriefing. And even if it's not, even if it's not with a parent, right? So like when my students talk to me, um, so there's this kid, the same kid observing, okay, this is not good for me. Okay, but I really need mm. social interaction. Okay, but I see these kids who are kind of isolated in the normal social structure, they need to feel loved. Okay, I'm going, this is this is really what he did. I'm going to get my rabbi to, ho to come to my house during lunch, and I'm going to invite all of the kids who aren't sitting with anyone at lunch, and we're just going to we're just going to go talk and philosophize with the rabbi and let him lead and let them know they have a place to come and feel loved and, and um, connected. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, my goodness, that is the most beautiful thing. Right. So like, yeah, so he, he observed he didn't want to be part of this, um, you know, whatever social platforms he was on. And then he did. He replaced that with something that was more reinforcing than the actual interaction of the social media itself and probably more impactful to those kids, you know, um, who weren't connecting in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty wise discernment at that age I you know I think that there is this idea that we're connected socially in a real authentic way through social media and actually we're not we're getting further and further removed from deep intimacy the more that we scroll and interact and share curated parts of our lives and I think he picked up on that and was like wait I'm actually pretending to be social, but it's not having a positive impact on my life. You know, how do I create a real network of kids my age that are willing to interact? Also, just not on, you know, I'm using air quotes like social topics, which is difficult to get into real discussion on social media platforms. And he's like, it's not happening there. So I've got to go create an actual conversation somewhere else. Mm hmm. Yeah. So. I guess um, one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to you in particular about this is because your book, Transitory Nature, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, has really helped me. And uh, obviously, the work that I've been doing with you for many years, you were teaching this before the, the words were in print, right? It's like yeah. you've been saying, it doesn't have to be one or the other. What's the middle ground here? What's the middle ground here? And almost 
many situations. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so we don't have to be all doom and gloom about this. We don't have to like mm-hmm. be like, okay, you're, you can have a landline, which isn't quite practical <laughs> in today's. Um, well, in our, where we live, it isn't practical, right? Because we live in a suburb and our kids are out and about and it might be pretty useful for them to get in contact with us when they're outside of the home. Um, so I mm-hmm. am taking this as someone who is just on the cusp and verge of trying to figure out what's right for my kids is, okay, what's the middle ground here with technology and my preteen? Um, and so I you know, started doing research and also looking at, you mentioned the private public binary and, I, I, and we mentioned the masculine mm-hmm. feminine binary and I even think there's a lot of lack abundance going on. And so transitory needs are finding middle ground for this specific um, parenting challenge. There's actually multiple binaries at play and understanding Mm -hmm. those and understanding my kid's chart has helped so much. So can you maybe just touch on, I don't know, like, this isn't going to be the first and only challenging parenting decision I'll have to work through with my child, but how to use the transitory nature as a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just had an awesome session a couple weeks ago where someone's daughter came out as non-binary. And so there was this big discussion about, well, how do I do this as a mom? And what are the ways that I approach an evolving gender identity, which is a really big deal for Gen Z and lower, that that is going to be a part of their repertoire, you know, if it's on social media, if it's through the cell phone, and if it's at home in the family dynamics. Um, I think that, you know, particularly lack in abundance is very real at that age because you're looking around and saying, you know, what do my friends have? And what do I don't have? And how do I sort of stack up identity-wise based on the things that I see kids wearing and carrying and, you know, the shoes they have on. And that's a real social feedback loop at a younger age. And also a source of confidence or, you know, lack of self-worth debating between, you know, what kind of access do I have as a child or does my family have compared to everyone else in school? And, you know, really teen years is when you're starting to explore private public you know, your private life. And, you know, I love watching young kids that are like on the dance floor and they have no idea sort of, you know, what gender they are, what age they are, what their friends are doing. You know, they're just like music. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) You're right. And then there's a certain period when that goes away. And I think that that's a really great indicator of when public, the uh, awareness of the public side of the binary starts to enter the space because you start mutating your social interactions, your body language, your voice tone, your outfits, all that kind of stuff when you realize that you are being externally perceived and how does that make your internal world feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that gets really tricky on the phone because now all of a sudden you're in private and you're having all these biochemical reactions, but your curated self-image is in public. And that's something that I hear all the time inside my sessions as well and, and inside my own body. Like, oh, I said I'm giving up coffee, but three weeks later I'm drinking one. And it's kind of like, of course you are, Sue. You're a complex human that's going to make lots of different choices and is surely going to stumble Right. But it creates a little schism there between like what I'm actually wanting people to perceive me as and then some of the choices that I have access to make when no one's watching. And when we have our our private public like mutating and merging inside the social media space or the text chain space or the selfie space, right, we really start uh, looking at our self-image differently, our self-confidence, our self-trust and and how we actually want to behave out in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was it's hard enough when you didn't have the what did you call them? What did you uh, the co-regulation of the phone? It was hard enough when mm-hmm. you didn't have that co-regulator. I in my mind for myself, you know, when going through puberty, yeah. I think about some of the biggest hormonal shifts and kind of metamorphoses in my body, adolescence going through puberty and postpartum, well, even like 
um, prenatal too. But um, that was mm-hmm. that was tough. I can't imagine. You know, I I think it would be hard to have a much more public platform when you're trying to sift through all of the internal changes that that are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the next step for us as adults too is to stop saying that it's a necessary evil, and that mm-hmm. you know I I used to see because I did a lot of research in the author space of what are the author archetypes out there that I like what they're doing and I like what they're putting out in public, and you know how do I mimic that right? And the more that I got down that rabbit hole, what I heard the most with people that have, you know, 5 million followers is use social media as a tool. Just get on here, do your little reel, and then get off. And I just felt this really big disconnect that unless they have a social media manager and they're paying someone to do that and they can physically pay someone to do that, but a lot of them don't, right? They're behind their screens. They're behind their screens selling on their stories, And they're posting multiple reels a day. And that was a big divide for me where I was like, do I want to be doing that when I'm 50? (laughs) Like, is that what I want to be doing? Because if I don't figure out a solution now, I will very quickly be doing that when I'm 50. (laughs) Yeah. And that was a big divide for me. It's not a necessary evil if Mm. we keep, unless we all keep saying it is. Right. You know what I think is interesting, though, to keep in mind is I, uh, so just the timing of my social, of my Instagram usage, I'll say, um, kind of correlating to me becoming an entrepreneur are pretty much in tandem. Mm -hmm. I'd say the journey and the escalation and the increased usage, right? Um, I think that a lot of people, well, there are a lot of recipients of, of the posts that are not using it for business. So for example, I, I first started my personal account so that it could keep up with my, my nieces who lived across the country. I wanted to see their pictures and what they're doing. And the, the way I could get that was through Instagram. And then I started like, okay, this, this is my account only for family members or people who have known me for 10 years. And it's like for my family posts. And what I realized mm-hmm which one of the things that I'm going to change about my personal usage is my girls, as they got older, while their grandparents got to see pictures of them and their aunts and uncles got to see them, they felt really gypped. And I've gotten to the point now where I haven't, I used to make them picture books every year. And then it kind of slowly turned into, I'm not making those picture books anymore. It's just all these posts that they never get to see or touch or read or remember, which really sucks for Mm. them. But one of the things that kind of stopped me in my tracks was like a big um, moment for my oldest. She wanted to share that with her grandparents, but they had already seen the moment happen on Instagram and she got gypped out of sharing that. Oh, guess, Mm. guess what this, guess what accomplishment I did. They had already known. And then they're like, okay, (laughs) moving on. And I was like, Oh "Oh my gosh, I I stole that from her. I, you know, why did why did mm. I do that? So I, you know, so that's like me pre, pre-entrepreneur using it and just the effect mm-hmm. that that had on my kids. So I feel like one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to stop posting and start making their picture books again, which I've got several years mm. to catch up on. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is a really good example of one of the things that I see happening all the time in my life and others' lives is that we like gamify and make our life content, right? And so it's even our family members that are scrolling through our life, right? Because if it's a tiny thing or a mega thing, you know, it gets posted. And so then it all, it creates this like scrolling gamification of our lives. And that is a little bit freaky, I think. You know, it's great that the grandparents get to see, but there's so many ways that we can do that via email chain or just a text chain or a conversation once a month, right? Something like that, where we actually get to portray the emotional importance of things that happen in our lives. And it's not just this content wheel and it all just gets thrown into this content wheel. Because that too made me also think like, well, how quickly am I throwing away important things, right? Like, why do I need to make a birthday post? All the things I learned at 36. (laughs) Why can't I take four hours to just think about that? Because that really matters on my solar return, right? 
and not mm-hmm. have it be just scrolled past as if, oh yeah, that occurred. But there was no engagement, actual embodied engagement with that. Yeah, totally. And I I actually would do the same, do on my kids' birthdays, I would put a lot of time and thought into these, you know, kind of like where they were in that moment of time and really ref- like writing this post for them that they never saw or haven't read. So my, I think my job now is to go through and like harvest all of these posts that I had made over the years so that they can tangibly hold this and see how much, and so they can see how much I love them and what I thought of them when they turned four and six and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But and I, then that also gives them access to not want to be on social either because now they have this memory book that's more of an art book and it's relational between you and them. It's not you flipping your phone screen around and going, happy birthday. I told all my friends from high school and college that it's your birthday today. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And I think one thing that I think is really important and um, because I have the privilege of working with kids, I get to see like their raw creativity. And one thing I notice in myself is, you know, I, I love writing. I have boxes of journals stacked up since when I was in high school and I love taking pictures of my kids and I love taking pictures of nature and just kind of how how that's been a social media has been a like it's leaked out my creativity there and so kind of harnessing Mm -hmm. that back in and being like what really matters here I'm always talking about making things visual and kinesthetic and multi-sensory so I'm going to do that and that that um reinforcement of that kind of as a replacement for the social media is much greater than mm, the reinforcement huge, yeah. than just from social media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was another reason for me as well. I was already super annoyed, you know, as a longtime teacher, you know, I don't love the word content, but, you know, I've been creating content for 20 years and organizing it and arranging it for people to digest and my social media voice was a totally different voice than what I would actually write and what I would want to engage with as a consumer of content. And it dictates a certain way that we create, if that's via static image and now all the reels and the stories, you know, and constant engagement. And then that means you're always using free prana to go through those outlets of creation, which like maybe I would rather make pottery, right? Maybe I'd rather sew a skirt Maybe I'd rather just, you know, write morning pages in a voice that has nothing to do with portraying bullet lists of how to be more mindful, right? Social media makes you create in a particular kind of way, and it also boosts certain types of tones and the way that content's organized. And that Mm -hmm. was something that I was like, I'm really tired of mutating my ability to have big ideas that do not fit in this square and do Mm -hmm. not fit in this um, word count. I'm just tired of mutating my creativity to always be in those directions. Mm. I think that's probably one of my fears of, of giving kids access technology is that I wouldn't want the screen to replace what they're already doing. Like, you know, my middle child is such an artist and she will find all sorts of mediums in whatever she can get her hands on to create. And I wouldn't want to replace that. Right. So Mm -hmm. having them spend and having them spending time doing what they love and getting their hands wet and dirty and learning how to express through music or dance or whatever it is. um, Mm, I feel like. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Really good point. And I think, you know, even as an adult creator, I try to not have the public vision on what I'm making and that that when it's in its private phase, I leave it in its private phase. So, for example, Transitory Nature, I was working on it for three years and not one time did I put it on social media or on my website or on my newsletter or anything like that. So you can imagine if you're seven and you were to post your painting on social media and it got three likes or it got 100,000 likes either direction, it creates a, f- a feedback loop where now your art is based on outside judgment. And mm-hmm. before you're through that private phase, when you've really developed your connection to it and what you want it to do in the world and its importance and 
what you feel about it, all of a sudden there's new feelings coming in that aren't yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the, I think the through line of this is, you know, as you've all, if it's, you've taught me is the finding the middle ground and what works, um, and kind of challenging status quo in a way that mm-hmm. is going to be, um, functional for your particular family, um, and I don't know. I don't know where I'll end up on this. I think you know me well enough to know I'm usually like, fire, ready, aim. <laughs> um, and with this one, I'm just like really sitting on it. I wait. I don't know how long it's going to take before we, as a family unit, um, land. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you I mean do in know. in terms of like giving your kids access to social mm-hmm. and phones and sort of what that parenting trajectory looks like? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to make sure that it's developmentally appropriate and um, that it's not going to do more harm than good, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, like I, my very first phone was the um, Nokia brick, right? Which all you could really do was text and call. And my parents used to monitor the log of how long it was only for emergencies. Right. So I couldn't be calling my friend when I was at the pool, like come down to the pool or whatever. And so they found out that just my sister and I were calling each other. And sometimes the conversations would be like three minutes long and they would go, that's not an emergency. (laughs) No one reached out to us, (laughs) you know, and you're only calling each other. Right. So I mean, in hindsight, it was a great way to say, like, sure, if you need something, here we are. But at the same mm-hmm. time, we're going to make sure that you're not just using it for frivolous endeavors about going to UDF to get a milkshake, you know. Like, <laughs> you can go and do that without calling each other on the phone, you know. And mm-hmm. so I don't know if that's a solution, but it definitely, you know, a lot of my friends had social media before me because they had smartphones. And then, you know, in college, I refused to get on Facebook until finally my junior year roommate was like, no one knows who you are. (laughs) I'm like, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so it wasn't really until, you know, I was in the laptop zone where I really needed it for school and work. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a moment there where they're there as well. You know, Mm -hmm. that they're like, "Okay, going to college. So I'm going to need a computer. I'm going to be on a computer a lot. And they probably already are actually after the pandemic and Zoom and all of that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but I think it's wise that, that you showed Genevieve the text message like, is this something you want to be doing all day long? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the one thing I've learned is even as a 20 year meditator, that that those platforms are so slippery. And as much as I can tell myself I'm being mindful, I'm actually not being honest. And there's a distinction there. And that's something I couldn't really do until I was an adult. So maybe if there's just more conversation about, you know, what technology addiction can look like. Because I think that's something we should be talking about more as a culture. And to be honest with like, oh, yeah, when I got off social, I noticed now my screen time is 45 minutes or less a day. And that's during the work week. And then I also noticed the tick to just, you know, flip it over and check my alerts that was at 80 times a day and now it's at literally less than 10 times a day. So just watching that and and being open with that with the people around us, if that's, you know, students we teach or just our family units in general. I think too, um, kind of explicitly pointing out the differences between having a friendship that started in face-to-face 3D real life, I would say real life versus those that are maybe stoked more through technology are, I mean, I think they're a little bit different. So for example, um, one of my best friends I met 20 years ago as a camp counselor, she's from Australia. We've kept in touch. We send each other packages every year. We talk a couple times, but since we both discovered Marco Polo, we now talk like every day, which has been fantastic mm. for our relationship. 
versus somebody who you maybe meet once, get their number, and you mostly only text with them or see them once in a while, or maybe it's somebody you meet online and only text with them before mm-hmm. you actually talk to them. Like, I think it's really interesting to make sure kids know that distinction. Um, mm, yeah, that's a good point. And I think that's just safety for them as well. Yeah. You know, at that young of an age, knowing that, you know, there are such things as catfish and you can have a profile, but that doesn't really mean that that's who's behind the profile. You know, obviously some of those safety issues are mitigated when you're in public and the child's like, oh, I don't know you. I actually don't know you. Right. Like their proprio reception is understanding this person is not familiar to me. Yeah. But I think your other point that you made with friends that you meet on social media and then how technology can actually keep you connected in a positive way if you met in person first. That's one of the like inventories I also took of like how many people did I meet through this platform that I actually have an authentic real relationship with that I've met in person and it came mm-hmm. down to five or less out of you know mm-hmm. 17k followers that someone that I met through social media and now I actually have a real relationship with and then also like high school friends and girlfriends right that I knew physically And then now I sort of am a voyeur of their life, but we don't have a real relationship anymore, right? So I started taking inventory on both sides of the list of what those numbers Mm. looked like. And, you know, I left my social media profile up so you can find me, you can find my work. If you Google me, it'll pop up, but I'm like not there making content or engaging in DMs. Dan physically, my partner deleted his and two people reached out and gave him his phone, their phone numbers. Like, I'd like to stay in contact with you. So that's two out of like 1,200 followers that he had. <laughs> so I think that there's, it's really wise to take inventory on both sides of the list. Like, who, who would I want in my inner circle? And do I want to keep spending time with them and talking with them? Yeah, and that's actually one of the kind of promising things I'll say. There's like a glimmer of, I can see the utility of, you know, I've kind of listed out on this continuum between no phone, landline, all the way through to smartphone. And some of the some of the technology that's available for kids is kind of cool because you can choose, like, you, the parent has to approve if a number can get put into a phone. So it's like, who is this you want to put into your phone? Oh, oh, so-and-so from swim team that you've known for 10 years? Okay, great. <laughs> um, all the way through, like, you know. There's a lot of options, I think, which is promising. I just need to do the due diligence and research what's going to be the most um, useful for our needs. Um, But then I think, and I honestly think one of the reasons I'm so fearful of like the full-fledged access is because I don't want to police that. And I've been, I've sat Mm. in middle school, a middle school auditorium where this police detective was talking about some of the creepy things that happens to kids were like, it seemed like this really innocent app. Um, but predators were able to like locate where the kid's bedroom was in their house, like really weird tracking stuff. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. want to, I don't have the bandwidth to, to police that. So maybe my yeah. husband's like, let's just get her a jitterbug. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think that's really wise and so important because we are doing that as adults too. And we have an option to say like, don't allow tracking. And that is actually all embedded in the app. And like, I consent to that if there's access Mm -hmm. there or not. Mm. Right. So to have multiple children with multiple smartphones (laughs) and having to check all those location services and everything, I'm sure there might be like a master setting you could do or something. But yes, I think that technology has made it much more accessible for people to have profiles and find actual locations, timestamps. You know, that was definitely a consideration for me as well. Like, do do I want to be tracked like this? You know, do I want my location services, uh, you know, on a larger scope as well? I think that there's an earthly element there too of like, I was like already anti-geotag, but there is ways that you can find those timestamps and location stamps, you know, and I think that opens up everyone to um, a lot of, oh no, this could be really creepy. This could be really creepy and detrimental. Mm. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. And that's something we're not really considering. Go ahead. Yeah, didn't no, just that. Um, <laughs> the, no, you didn't. I was just like, um, the thing has achieved consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely getting smarter and, you know, watching all of our 7 billion collective habits. And so mm-hmm. that's something to consider if you want to be a part of or not. Um, you know, that that was a deciding factor for me as well, which is like, I might be one of the last generations that actually has the physical choice, right? There's already technology being developed that's implantable technology to be connected to Wi-Fi and networks and social networks 24-7. And that it's not that that's a sci-fi thing. Like, that's actually pretty real. There's under-research and development. So it, it was important to me as a 36-year-old, you know, am I one of the last generations that actually is going to hold their iPhone in their in their hand and still have the choice to put it down? Hmm. I hope And that not. will be interesting, I think, for <laughs> – yeah, me too, but – I think that will be interesting for childhood development too, you know, like what does that look like by the time they're 25 and they're, you know, just out of undergrad and they're trying to get their first job, there might be certain requirements to be engaged in certain types of technology or apps or implants or always connected to our phone. Like we already see this addiction to work in our culture. And I think that the smartphone is doing nothing but increasing that addiction as well mm-hmm. that we we have access all of the time and people have access to us all of the time mm-hmm. yeah I so having been going through this little journey and you know going back to the beginning of, I'm going to observe my habits I notice like my email on my phone I think I'm getting to the point where that's going to go maybe I think um I'm away from home now, so I and I don't have access to the internet right now. So right now it's pretty useful if I, when I'm trying to run my business. But I think when I get home and am back on Wi-Fi, I think it's going to be the next thing to go off of my phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you talk a lot about um, in even increase of mental health um, challenges with the grown-ups and like how we need to be taught basic self-care practices again and there's got to be correlation there too Mm -hmm. yeah I I agree and I think that that needs to extend to our tech usage as well especially sort of coming out of the pandemic because it went up so much in certain ways that might have been unconscious and unmindful of how we're actually using technology you know and it's just, it's kind of like the the same thing of, you know, if I leave a pie in my fridge for a week, it's going to get eaten, right? Mm-hmm. And we have all these like mechanisms that we make good choices by our own needs and we just need to fold technology into that as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. Sue, thanks for the conversation. Can you tell everyone where they can find you if they would like to... Um, maybe even have a session with their team. I, I can't say enough amazing things about the work you've done with not only me, but also with Genevieve and helping her through some really already really sticky relationship, friendship stuff um, as a young preteen. So I would love for others to know how to find you. Mm-hmm. Sure. You can find me at suehunt.com. And my email's there and contact there and I'll get back to you via email. And, you know, I love that you worked with Genevieve. I would love, I had a great relationship with you. So it was very easy to bring your daughter in as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's really valuable to open up lines of communication in different language sets and also give them access to speak that isn't sort of in the mother-daughter dynamic and it's only focused on their chart which is a really interesting place to be as well. So I love working with parents and kids and, you know, astrology and meditation is the medium and you can find me at suehunt.com. Yeah, it's been awesome. And it's been really cool to see her apply what she's learned from you and with you about her chart to her relationship with everyone. She's 
Um, oh yeah she's a libra so she's got a lot of relationships (laughs) yeah for sure um she um she was updating her journal she keeps a note of like who's who you know who so we're here um in northern michigan with tons of family i mean there's like we have 20 great grandchildren so she's a great grandchild and we we have somebody in every age from one to 13 so she's in hogs heaven wow. right now. So she's got like a list of everyone's <laughs> names and what sign, what their star sign is. And it's really Aww. cute. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what a cool well, thing. Thank you for I, having me. Yeah, absolutely. Take mm-hmm. care. I really Satnam. appreciate it. Satnam. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. We are so grateful to have you as part of our community. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow, download, and share this episode. You can also like, tag, and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus, and on Instagram, at mindful.literacy.practice. We love creating these episodes and hearing from you. May you be inspired and energized and share this love with those in your next time, you can be happy, healthy, and